Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's July 10th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Adam White, who is a contributor to the Weekly Standard and a frequent commenter on all things Supreme Court. Thanks so much for joining me this morning. Uh, rather historic morning. Uh, <laughs> a lot to talk about today, Adam. Now, glad to be here. That's obviously a big day. All right. First of all, tell me, were you at all surprised by the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh, considering some of the the speculation that uh, Mitch McConnell had suggested that his paper trail might be too long? Well, I wouldn't have been surprised by by the president picking any of the final four. Um, uh, they're all strong candidates. I mean, I, I wouldn't have necessarily bet on any single one of them since you never know what the president's going to do. Uh, but Kavanaugh is a, a really solid choice. So there's really no... I think uh, there's there's no argument that in picking Kavanaugh, Trump in the White House didn't go for somebody with a strong claim to being the best nominee. Yeah. Okay. So, what what do you think the the logic was? I mean, reverse engineering this uh, clearly an appointment of uh, of uh, Judge Barrett would have been a kind of meat to the base. Uh, social conservatives. Uh, Hardiman had some personal ties with uh, with the president. He was the Runner up last time around, a friend of friend of the, the president's uh, sister. Uh, Kathledge seemed to be um, a sort of a consensus choice, uh, at least in the last twenty four hours. What do you think was the decisive element that made President Trump true choose Kavanaugh? Well, with Kavanaugh, what you have is somebody who has been on the second highest judicial stage in the country for over a decade, writing a series of opinions on the structure of the Constitution, on the role of the courts the relationship of the courts to the administrative state and the rest of government. And so what you have with Kavanaugh is an established record of serious, serious uh, constitutional analysis. He's the most known quantity of all of the four final four, uh, of, of all the final four. Um, and of course, his, his, his sheer volume of judicial opinions coming on top of his work on the Bush administration and before that Ken Starr, means a, an enormous amount of paper for the confirmation process, but it also means that he was the most known quantity to choose from. In many ways, he was the safest pick jurisprudentially. People know what they're getting with him on not every not every issue, but so many uh, important issues. Yeah, I mean, this really underlies how the process has has changed in so many ways. There's a, he's not going to be another David Souter. You know, I saw a lot of speculation on social media, but, you know, in, in, in the modern world where you have the Federalist Society and others who are doing the deep vetting and creating a list of judicial conservatives, uh, you're not going to have a David Souter who basically was what pulled from John Sununu's back pocket at one point. So there is a, a reliability factor that Republicans and, and judicial conservatives have never really had before. I mean, this is this is one of the game changers. And this is not because of Donald Trump. This is because of uh, years of work in the vineyards by a lot of uh, conservative activists, including uh, folks like Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society. Right. And, you know, people, when they complain about David Souter, what they're really complaining about more than anything else is his vote in, in the key abortion cases. And that isn't an issue that Kavanaugh has really squarely delved into. And so who knows that, that on that point, he doesn't have as much of a record. But, you know, I, I run a program at George Mason called the Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And for the last 10 years, that's involved in no small part studying the work. To study the administrative state has been to study the work of judges like Brett Kavanaugh, who have been writing opinions that even when they haven't prevailed in the D.C. Circuit, have become the stuff of Supreme Court majorities. 
Uh, it's, it, I've been saying today that in many ways it's fitting that Kavanaugh would finally be joining the court because his ideas have been at the court long before this nomination. Okay, let's talk about those ideas. What what sure. is uh, I, I want to go you know broadly into you know who is Brett Kavanaugh and what is his judicial philosophy. But let's just follow up on that point. Um, sure. His his attitude toward the administrative state because clearly that was one of the, the things that propelled him to the top of this list. So yeah. what 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 is the Brett Kavanaugh philosophy? The approach. Well, when you talk about courts and the administrative state, it's a few questions. One of them is how much deference courts should give to agencies in interpreting the laws that the agencies are administering. This is a point where Kavanaugh, like a lot of conservatives more recently, has been raising questions about doctrines of deference, saying maybe the courts are being too deferential. Maybe the rule of law and judicial duty requires courts to take more of an independent role in interpreting the statutes. On that point, Kavanaugh continues the trend on the Supreme Court. He continues the the work of his predecessor and former boss, Justice Kennedy, who was himself sort of, especially in his last couple of opinions, raising questions about about judicial de- deference. So that's one issue, the deference issue. Also is the question of the structure of, of agencies. This is another place where Kavanaugh has played a leading role. He decided, he issued a, a majority opinion for the D.C. Circuit and a constitutional challenge to the structure of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He said that, that its independence went be- and, and structure went beyond anything the Supreme Court had ever previously affirmed. And that it was an unconstitutional commitment of independence to this one particular agency. Now, the D.C. Circuit ended up rehearing the case as a whole, and the, and the Democratic heavy court ended up vacating Kavanaugh's opinion. Kavanaugh's opinion ended up getting adopted just a few weeks ago by the federal district court in Manhattan, which also declared the CFPB structure unconstitutional. So there's those structural issues which relate in some ways to the independent counsel case, Morrison v. Olson which Kavanaugh has said is the, the Supreme Court precedent he most would like to see overturned. He said this in a, a talk at the American Enterprise Institute a few years ago. So that's the second issue is agency structure. And finally, the third issue. Um, the, the third issue is the breadth of powers that Congress gives agencies. Kavanaugh, in cases involving net neutrality and uh, the EPA's greenhouse gas emissions rules, he's counseled caution in just assuming that Congress uh, has or should vest basically unlimited powers in agencies. He's told, he, he's urged courts, he's urged his colleagues to look skeptically on agencies' claims of open ended powers. And so he's thinking also about that delegation of power from the agents to the, to, to the agencies from Congress. So those are the three main issues when it comes to uh, what we call the administrative state issues. Kavanaugh's uh, been a reformer on all of them. On, on, on all of those issues, Ed's uh, um, apparently has a great deal of respect for you know the Article One powers of, uh, of of Congress and the separation of powers. But of course, one of the raps on him today is that he has endorsed rather robust powers of the presidency, including uh, suggesting that the president should be immunized from from indictments or civil lawsuits. So this is kind of an interesting, you know, historical track because of course he was part of Ken Starr's uh, lengthy investigation into Bill Clinton. That apparently soured him on some of these investigations. So even though he's skeptical of the powers of the administrative state, is Brett Kavanaugh more open to more robust presidential powers than a lot of folks on the left might be comfortable with? Well, a lot of attention is being paid and will be paid to an article that Kavanaugh wrote for the Minnesota Law Review in, I think, 2009, where he he aired some of these views. 
um, right. on the question of presidential power, executive privilege, and the and the president's exposure to civil or criminal lawsuits. Um, he he said in the course of the paper that uh, Congress should act and pass legislation that shields or at least defers criminal indictments or civil litigation against the president until the president leaves office so that litigation can't be used as a tool for, uh, for, for distracting the president, hobbling him. You know, just Kavanaugh said, better to keep these things after, until after the presidency. Now, some I, I saw late last night and this morning some pundits saying, well, this means that Kavanaugh says that the Constitution itself doesn't give that protection. You know, I, heard, I heard Lawrence O'Donnell make that point last night. Yeah, I heard O'Donnell, too. He was really pressing it really aggressively. And then I saw yeah. some other folks on TV this morning. Well, the thing is, uh, just read the footnotes. There's a footnote to that exe- to, to the statement O'Donnell and others are talking about. There's a footnote in the article where Kavanaugh says, just to be clear here, it's a close question whether the Constitution mm-hmm. protects the president from indictment. So Kavanaugh has been very careful on this. Now, one of the themes of this nomination, it's, gonna be the th- it's the theme of every nomination, is that in addition to the Roe v. Wade issues, you know, the hot-button political issues always end up getting amplified in the hearings. For Alito and Roberts, there was a lot of talk about presidential war powers because it was right after 9-11 and the Iraq invasion. Uh, for Kagan and Sotomayor, there was more talk about campaign finance regulation and those sorts of things. With Gorsuch, there was people who wanted to talk about religious liberty because it was on the heels of the Obama administration's maneuvers. The Kavanaugh nomination, when they're not talking about Roe v. Wade and, 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 and same-sex marriage and those sorts of things, there's going to be a lot of questions about presidential power, about indicting presidents, about independent counsels. Uh, this is going to be the Kavanaugh nomination, mm-hmm. but in some ways it's going to be the Donald Trump hearings. Yeah, and I think that's the one area, and I, I described that this morning in my eight uh, hot takes, was that's kind of the sleeper issue because, you know, Roe versus Wade, we kind of know how that's going to play out with the debate. It's going to be, but but the question is, would he be the swing vote that uh, might invalidate Robert Mueller's um, uh, subpoena and or indictment? We don't know. There's going to be a lot of talk about whether he should recuse himself from that, at least take that off the off the table. But I'm going to take it now a, a a step back, just a little historical preference, you know. And, and I I think I know what the answer to this question is, but I'm interested in 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 your take. There once was a time, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, where somebody with a Brett Kavanaugh's credentials, uh, his respect across the political spectrum, at least before the, you know, the the hysterical rhetoric began, that somebody like a Brett Kavanaugh, because he was so eminently qualified, would sail the confirmation. You know, 70, 80, 90 votes. There was once a time when that happened. Right. When was was there a turning point? Was it the Bork nomination, where we actually moved from? Uh, Evaluating nominees based on their judicial temperament and their qualifications, their intellectual, uh, their intellectual strengths, um, to just flat out voting up or down based on ideology. Was that the turning point? Well, it's funny. Scalia used to joke um, when he would reflect on these points. He'd say he'd remind us that he was confirmed ninety-eight nothing, and the two the two that didn't vote. It wasn't Democrats who didn't show up. I think one was Barry Goldwater and the other was another Republican. Think about uh, that for a minute. I mean, that is an extraordinary data point. That Andon and Scalia, who had now become the symbol of conservative jurisprudence, was confirmed ninety-eight to nothing. That feels like it was last century because it was right. <laughs> right now, now the, the the sort of the caveat to that is Scalia was confirmed unanimously after the much more heated uh, confirmation fight to make Rehnquist the chief justice. That one that was more mm-hmm. contestly or hotly contested. 
You know, what happened after that? Well, a few things. There was Bork, there was Thomas, there was Souter. Even in the 90s, President Clinton's nominations received overwhelming support. Ginsburg and Breyer were easily confirmed. Hmm. Um, What's changed? Well, I think the best place to look for this, again, to keep invoking Scalia, not just because his name is on my business cards at the Scalia Law School, but the fact that one of his most important opinions in this context was his dissent in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the, the Roe v. Wade follow-up. At the end of his dissent, he has a really eloquent passage where he says, you know, my colleagues often worry and people worry that confirmation hearings are too heated, too contentious. This is in, in 92. Uh, he says, well, so long as the court is in the business of making value judgments on behalf of the country, well, of course these nomination fights are going to be heated. Because the Senate and the American people are just as capable of making value judgments as nine judges are. As long as that's what the court is doing, then these things will be fought very aggressively Mm. from both sides. And so what's changed since the 80s? Well, in many ways, it has been the culmination, the 80s and and, and 90s, especially Planned Parenthood versus Casey, were the culmination of that three- or four-decade project on the Supreme Court of using broadly worded rights in the Constitution as a means for shutting down uh, democratic politics at the federal and state levels, uh, and there was a, and and there, the backlash to that or the the response to that was for people to recognize that these lifetime appointments are extraordinarily important when the court is making political and value judgments, and that's what changed. And it's hard to imagine things going back. Now, in some ways, I think more transparency. Taking the you know for lifetime appointments, taking lifetime appointments very seriously is a good thing. There's a downside to the court, the Senate just casually confirming Supreme Court justices 98 nothing. Um, I think in some ways this change is bad, but in some ways it's good. You know, I was at an event uh, last night here in Crested Butte where somebody was, of course, uh, raising the question of Merrick Garland because a lot of folks on the left are never going to let that go. Uh, Mitch McConnell's decision not to bring that up for for a hearing. You know, and you know the the demonization of that whole process, which I don't want to relitigate at the moment. But you think back on the contribution of people like Harry Reid to the moment we're in now. You know, yeah. when he abolished the filibuster, it was one of those classic moments. You know, be careful what you wish for, especially in a democratic system where you may not always be in charge. Because when he abolished the filibuster for the district court uh, judges, he clearly you know, opened the door to abolishing the filibuster for Supreme Court justices, which is probably going to make this process even more polarized than it was before. I mean, we obviously have already gotten to that point, but now we're really looking at seriously discussing having a Supreme Court justice confirmed with with a mere 50 votes, which would have been unthinkable in previous generations. Even just last year when Gorsuch was nominated, I wrote a piece saying, you know, if Democrats would have to be suicidal to filibuster the Gorsuch nomination, because in the aftermath of the Reed rule change, uh, which you know nominally left just Supreme Court nominations subject to a filibuster, uh, Democrats filibustering Gorsuch means the end of Supreme Court nomination filibusters, that the Republicans would immediately negate it. And this was in the context of the Gore nomination, Gorsuch nomination to replace Scalia, so not an ideological change. And I, so I wrote last year, if they had any prudence they would save, they would keep their powder dry and save the filibuster showdown for the next nomination, which could, which may, you know, I said at the time, Kennedy or Ginsburg, right, mm-hmm. which, which would really change the balance of the court. But the Democrats, you know, shot, they fired that bullet last year. So now when you hear people like Chuck Schumer saying, we're going to use every tool at our disposal to stop this, 
at this point, they don't really have many tools left except outright character assassination. That's really all that's left. Now, I'll say, I've, I, I've, for as long as I've been writing about these things, I've been a strong proponent of Senate power um, and discretion in the judicial nomination process. Back during the Bush years, I wrote, you know, my first law review article was on why the Senate had no obligation to vote on judicial nominees. I was mm-hmm. writing that during the Bush years when the Democrats were filibustering Brett Kavanaugh, actually, and other lower court nominees. And I thought, I said, I wrote at the time, these are good nominees, they deserve to be on their courts, but the Senate's power is the Senate's power. And I believed that then under a Republican president, I believed that under a Democratic president, it's ultimately about the Senate's institutional prerogatives. Um, now, what's upset people, and this is the, why the, Gort- mm-hmm. the Garland analogy doesn't work, is when McConnell and the Senate majority decided not to proceed with the Garland nomination, they were the Senate majority. That was their prerogative. Uh, now, when Democrats say they want a, they want a, a repeat of that, they, they don't control the Senate. They're a minority party in the Senate, and the Senate isn't what the minority says it should be. Uh, I want to ask you about, I want to now shift to the confirmation process, including um, what might worry you the most about what we're about to go into. And you mentioned the, the key word character assassination. But today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by the Dollar Shave Club, which has everything you need to get ready in the bathroom. Any you know, basically, you know, you think about it as, as the shaving, obviously, with the razor, but they deliver everything you need to look, feel and smell your best. I mean, shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel. Uh, even a wipe that we've talked about b- before. Like I'm, you know, I'm actually kind of a big fan of the calming body cleanser, which we need so much these days. Anyway, all of Dollar Shave Club's products are made with top shelf ingredients that will not break your budget. You will feel the difference. Plus, shipping is included with your membership. So here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave products for just five bucks. You can get their Daily Essentials Starter Kit, which includes uh, the the body cleanser, the one wipes. They're you know they're amazing butt wipes. It's true. Uh, they're world famous blades coming for for just a few more bucks bucks a month and you add in shampoo toothpaste anything else you need for the bathroom you can check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash weekly standard that's dollarshaveclub.com slash weekly standard one of the best things is they don't have to shop for this stuff it actually just comes to the house all right adam white let's uh let's talk about uh the the confirmation process you know, despite uh, Brett Kavanaugh's credentials and the nice words we're hear- hearing uh, from, e- even from, you know, some some folks on the left, even, even Ben Wittes, who has been a good friend, who's been, you know, tweeting out about how the, the, uh, the Democrats need to have scorched earth policies, is writing nice things about him. But we're about to go into a process that um, um, I hope I'm wrong about this, but will make the borking of Robert Bork appear to be kind of just a, uh, a a preseason of event. So give me your sense of what the, the political lay of the land is now in the confirmation fight for Brett Kavanaugh. Well, I, I suppose it's fitting that we just, uh, the, the sponsor today sells body cleansers. By the time this nomination <laughs> is done, we're all, we're all going to want to, we're going to feel like we need to take a shower. This is going to get extremely ugly. Yeah, I, I, yes. I've said before, this that nomination- That was a good segue, by the way. That was an excellent segue. Thank you. I, I got to give you extra points for that. You know, well, taking you. a discussion of the Supreme Court back to the Dollar Shave Club ad. That was good. Okay, you <laughs> so, are a pro at this. <laughs> well, thanks. This nomination fight would be the most contentious one of our lifetimes, no matter when it occurs. Yeah. Right, because it's the Kennedy. It's the it's the Kennedy seat. Um, to take that nomination and parachute it into this political environment, <laughs> this really poisonous year. It adds up to something I don't think any of us can really expect. I've been saying the last couple of days, no matter how bad you think this could get, 
it's probably going to be worse, right? We saw the reactions upon the retirement announcement, right? People saying we should, the next Democratic president needs to pack the court, there needs to be no vote um, on this. And, we've, and by the way, we've already seen character assassinations of Justice Kennedy, right? After 30 years in the court of being lionized as a defender of Roe v. Wade and, 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 and the right to same-sex marriage and so on, Within two weeks of his retirement, he's been accused of two conspiracy theories. One was that he retired because of his son's bank doing deals with Trump. And now, last night and today, it's he retired because of some secret deal with Trump to get his protege Kavanaugh nominated. I half expect that next week we'll hear hear, allegations that Kennedy retired because Trump promised him really good deals on European hotel suites. Uh, for his next vacation. I mean, they're yeah, already... Is, are any of those actually implausible? <laughs> None of them are true. Right. You know that... But they have a certain plausibility, right? <laughs> yeah, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if Kennedy expressed, you know, a preference for for the for particular Judge Scalia told the Obama White House that he, he hoped they would appoint Kagan. And they did. Um, mm. But 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 anyway, so the character assassination... And, and by the way, there's really nothing sorry, wrong with that. I mean, honestly, no, a, you know, if, if he had said that, I, I don't see that that's, that's a scandal... And it, of course, and I have no idea whether or not it's true. There's apparently one source, and there's a little bit of walk back already. But you know, there, there, it, it is striking to me that that Kavanaugh, you know, got to that top of the list and stayed at that top of the list, you know, despite the the, the doubt. So, you know, yeah. was there a conversation? Did Trump feel that this is what Kennedy would have wanted? Uh, perhaps so. And and again, that's that's not that, that's actually not a scandal. Yeah, but and it's that and it's that and it's it's there's a there's a big difference between. Kennedy saying, I hope you guys nominate Kavanaugh, and, and, and the White House recognizing that appointing Kennedy clerks like Gorsuch and Kavanaugh might help grease the skids for Kennedy to leave. It's another to think that there was some sort of backroom deal and a handshake or something like that. But, but you know, so the, the character assassinations on Kennedy have already started. What will we see for Kavanaugh? It's hard to say. I've heard people say, well, Kavanaugh also clerked for Alex Kaczynski, this, the the libertarian Ninth Circuit judge who retired in disgrace over you know over sexual harassment or something along those lines and and Kavanaugh knew surely knew what Kaczynski was doing at the time I mean we'll get a flavor of that I don't know what else we're gonna get but there's no uh, the, well no wasn't really wasn't, there, wasn't there one yeah I mean that that's the thing with the the extensive paper trail I assume that all yeah. of the emails from the Bush years are going to come out and there, there was that one unsubstantiated story that that somebody once saw him mouthing the B word in reference to Hillary Clinton whether that's huh. true or not who knows but I, but trust me you're gonna be here you're gonna be hearing about the B word a lot um, and, and at some Charlie, point during the, this the real wild card in this speaking of, of B words is, is David Brock. Right, the, the the left wing activist who's been running character assassinations on conservatives for years now at Media Matters, you know his memoir, Blinded by the Right, you know talking about his years writing for the American Spectator and being a conservative. You know Brett Kavanaugh uh, and Laura Ingram make cameos in that in, in that book. Kavanaugh was a friend of David Brock's in the '90s, and who knows what sort of allegations and lies David Brock is going to raise against Kavanaugh. Saying, well, I knew him in the '90s, and here's you know terrible things that he did. I mean, I would put nothing past David Brock, and this is one where he is uniquely positioned to just raise ridiculous allegations about about Kavanaugh. How did, they, how did they know? How did they know? No one another. Uh, they were young people in Washington D.C. Right? They, Brett Kavanaugh <laughs> was a young up-and-coming conservative lawyer. So was Laura Ingram. David Brock was uh, was a journalist at the time. See, this is why I'm so glad that I'm still in Wisconsin. 
Because you know, <laughs> I, you don't you don't get into the swamp. You know, the problem is, is you know, you, you you come out of the womb, you're immediately swampified, and you hardly know. I mean, it's sort of like fish don't know that they're wet because they're just they're they're in the in the water. Swamp yeah. creatures don't know they're swampy until it's it is too late. Um, I, I have to ask you about this though. You know, my sense early on is that this does not pose a particularly tough dilemma for never Trumpers because you know, dis- despite the despite science and despite the adage, sometimes the fruit of the poisonous tree is is not is not itself poisonous. And I look at uh, Brett Kavanaugh's appointment and I say, look, um, I don't care how critical you've been of Donald Trump. If this had been an appointment made by President Rubio or President Cruz or President Walker or President Bush, we would all be enthusiastically supportive. And so far, that seems to be the reaction, even among some pretty harsh, consistent critics of Donald Trump. I, I, I obviously am one of them. I mean, the never Trump argument against well, against Trump was that no matter what good things he was going to bring on policy or judicial nominations, they would be outweighed by the downside of a Trump presidency, right? But that wasn't that wasn't a denial that good things would happen. And and this is one of those good things. Brett Kavanaugh is, you know, there, I mean, there's a lot of good things to be said for 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 Kethledge and Barrett and Hardiman, uh, but but Kavanaugh has been the leading uh, intellect on the federal bench for his generation, right? There really is no denying that this is a spectacularly good pick. Um, and and so we we you know even Trump's biggest critics ought to recognize that and, and, and appreciate that. Um, just like Gorsuch, this is really a home run. We don't know how he's going to rule on every single issue, right? We don't know how he's going to rule in most cases. Um, and we won't find out in the confirmation hearing because he's not going to answer questions. He is, after all, a sitting judge setting aside this nomination. There are limits on what he can say in prejudging issues. But given his record and his judicial opinions and also his writings. He's written really impressive law review articles while on the bench reflecting on on some of these structural constitutional issues. We see that we're getting somebody who really takes seriously the Constitution's separation of powers uh, and the rule of law. And even people who on the left who disagree with, with textualism, originalism, uh, or otherwise, they can't pretend that Brett Kavanaugh isn't a serious, uh, an honest, and an extremely uh, an extremely scholarly judge. Well, and, and that's what that's really ultimately what you want in a judge: somebody who has the intellectual capability, the the flexibility, the open mindedness to be able to be an effective uh, uh, judge. I thought it was uh, was striking. The and I'm, I'm just looking at this uh, right now. The the uh, Yale law professor, who's very very well known and respected in liberal circles, uh, Akil Reed Amar. You know, calling this appointment Trump's finest hour, his classiest mood, uh, saying that Kavanaugh commands wide and deep respect among scholars, lawyers, and jurists. You know, it's not going to stop the, uh, you know, the 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 attacks against him. But it, but it is a unique moment. So uh, obviously, this comes down to to two Republican women, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski. Um, I'm guessing that the White House had some reason to think that they would not veto this. Rand Paul's made some noises about Kavanaugh because of his role in the Bush administration. What's your sense of the vote counting right now? It's it's so hard to say, isn't it? And yeah. Especially because you know we said a moment ago that this is going to be a really unprecedented political pressure cooker um, for the next two months, right? The, the the Thomas hearings that we think about as being you know rightly recognized as being as Thomas said high tech lynching. Uh, that was a, that that part of his hearing was was a couple of weeks, right? What we're about to see is a pressure cooker from now into September, late September. We're talking two months, 
And it's impossible to say exactly what's going to happen with Collins and Murkowski. Uh, here's the thing: is Kavanaugh, like I said, he hasn't adjudicated really any 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 direct uh, Roe v. Wade uh, cases. He doesn't have much of a record on that. Uh, if Collins and Murkowski were to look at Kavanaugh's record and say, "Well, he's too much of a threat to Roe v. Wade," mm-hmm. um, and that's why we're not voting for him. Well, that's to say that they would n- never vote for any conservative judge in this context. Or anyone right? appointed by Trump, because Trump, I mean, the, the, the biggest uh, data point, of course, is that Trump said that he would only nominate judges who would overturn Roe versus Wade. And you're going to be hearing that quote over and over and over again over the next right. couple of months. Right. That's right. Now, we don't know what Kavanaugh said in response to that. Right. It's one thing for, for Trump to say, I'm only going to nominate people who I think will overturn Roe versus Wade. That doesn't say anything about what Kavanaugh said either to Trump or to others, or privately. No one knows. Um, and so Kavanaugh is, I think, you know, unlike Judge Barrett, who I liked, but who you know, had written on precedent and, and had given people you know, more sort of paperwork you know, surrounding those issues of Roe versus Wade. She never really weighed in on, on whether it should be overturned, but you know, there, was, there was more paperwork for people to look at. With Kavanaugh, there really isn't anything other than his just basic constitutional methodology. And if you're saying that you won't vote for Kavanaugh because he's a threat to Roe versus Wade, what you're saying is, I won't vote for a textualist because textualism is incompatible with Roe versus Wade, which means Collins and Murkowski wouldn't vote for anybody that Trump would nominate. Yeah. I, I think you and I have talked about this before. My sense is that uh, that Justice Roberts would be very reluctant as an institutional conservative to completely overturn Roe versus Wade, especially being just conscious of the firestorm that that would create, what that would do um, to to the culture, but that they will continue to you know re- reform abortion rights on the uh, on the margins, uh, push hard on you know religious exemptions, but at least uh, it, but but of course then there are folks you know on the left who are saying well that's just that's disingenuous because you have the pro life movement that has been saying repeal Roe versus Wade, repeal it, repeal it. The president promised to do it, and now you're you're poised to do it. Uh, you know conservatives are saying well it's not going to happen. So what is your sense? Do you think that Roe is is dead? Or do you think that the even with this court composition, they would be reluctant to overturn a precedent that deeply ingrained in the culture? Well, there isn't going to be a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade anytime soon. Right? What, this, what that requires, before anything else, is a state legislature and executive passing a law that doesn't just you know, regulate abortion, doesn't put some limits on, on abortion, but actually directly contradicts the core of the Roe v. Wade right to abortion especially in the first trimester, right? That's, a, you know, the, the, today we call it the undue burden test. Um, first, there has to be a state that actually passes that direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. You can imagine And then, that. of course, yeah, and, and, and that's right. And, and then, you know, there's, a, there's the whole course of litigation, but there's an important aspect of that litigation. And, and my home state of Iowa, all due respect to Wisconsin, uh, is, uh, is, mm-hmm. is, is, a, is a good example of this. Um, when a state passes laws on abortion and the people challenging those laws, the, the pro-abortion groups, aren't confident in the U.S. Supreme Court, what they'll want to do is challenge it at the state Supreme Court under the state constitution. If they can get the state courts to say that the state constitution protects the right to abortion, that decision doesn't get appealed to the Supreme Court because it's not about the U.S. constitution. So we're going to see a lot more of this litigation get channeled into the state courts and the state Supreme Courts under state constitutional law. The only time we're going to get a U.S. Supreme Court 
uh, challenge to Roe v. Wade is when the people challenging the law decide they have no choice but to roll the dice in the mm-hmm. federal courts and then go through two layers of lower court review and then get to the Supreme Court where the court's going to look at not just the merits of, of, of the Roe v. Wade issue per se, but also the question of how much weight to give Roe v. Wade as a precedent because it's a precedent, the start, what we call the stare decisis issue. It takes all of that before the court issues a decision that does or does not overturn Roe v. Wade. And as you mentioned earlier, the key vote there is, is not necessarily you know Justice Gorsuch or a Justice Kavanaugh. It's, it's Chief Justice Roberts and his view of the institutional interests of the court, the kind of thing that every chief justice is always attuned to. So it's a very long road. And I think anybody who thinks that Roe v. Wade is in imminent danger, either because they like that prospect or they, they dread that prospect, I think they're, they're, they're getting out ahead of themselves. One other thing, you mentioned the Chief Justice. The, the, day, the day after Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed is the day that people start to wonder, who is Chief Justice Roberts' successor as the chief? And the two frontrunners in that will be Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. And it will be interesting to watch them on the court. Oh, my. Adam White, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it very, very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes.